the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. 62 CP, Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. But the Sermon on the Mount has not only impacted well-known people who've had a hand in changing the course of history, this sermon has influenced millions of unknown people. Unknown people, it has changed their lives for the better. You see, the brilliance of the Sermon on the Mount is that this sermon touches essentially every significant area of our lives. What makes a sermon a great sermon? Is it the eloquence of the preacher? Maybe it's the conviction he displays as he speaks, or the conviction we sense in our hearts as we listen. Or maybe it's something deeper. Welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today, Pastor Steve will begin to introduce our next series of lessons, a study of the Sermon on the Mount, without a doubt, the greatest sermon ever delivered. We have a lot of ground to cover today, so let's get started. If you have your Bible handy, turn to Matthew chapter 5, and let's hear what Pastor Steve has to share with us. A number of years ago, when our son Ben was a young boy, I think he was about, about 13 years old, we sent him to a Christian basketball camp, the Pistol Pete camp. And one day, Ben came home and announced that one of the visiting instructors, uh, Jumpin' Joe Ward, gave a sermon that day. And he said, and I quote, it was the greatest sermon I have ever heard. That's what he said. Now, mind you, I was his pastor back then, and Ben had heard heard me give many sermons, but he said the greatest sermon he had ever heard was from Jumpin' Joe. And he even had a picture of him and autographed. Oh, it was, it was something special. And so as I slumped away in discouragement that day, Michelle said to me by way of encouragement, when, when he's older, he'll appreciate you and your ministry. And, and she was right. But I tell you, Ben is not the only one who's ever felt that a, a sermon he's heard was the greatest. Many of us, most of us, have our favorite sermons, and, and we have them from our favorite preachers and teachers, sermons that, that impacted our lives greatly, uh, defining moments, turning points in our lives, and that's, that's the case for most of us. Well, this morning, I, I want to introduce you to what is really the greatest sermon given by certainly the greatest person who has ever lived, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ giving the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount given by Jesus is the greatest sermon that has ever been given, and I'd like you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 to see this. We continue our study of Matthew's gospel, and we have come to chapter 5, and in verses 1 and 2, Matthew gives us the setting for the sermon that follows. It says this, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them saying, and the words that came out, the sermon on the mount. 
Now, with these words, as we said, Matthew gives us the sermon for, or the setting for the great sermon that follows. I want you to know the greatness of the sermon certainly is not found in its length. You can, you can read this sermon in about 10 minutes. There are only uh, 111 verses that this sermon has. It, it goes from chapters 5 to chapter 7 of Matthew. And most likely, Jesus had many more things to give in the sermon. You don't usually give 10 minutes. This was not a 10-minute devotional. This was a sermon, uh, and more than likely, Matthew is simply summarizing uh, some key points in it. But its greatness, as I said, does not lie in its, its length, its duration, anything like that. Its greatness lies in the fact that every word of it is profound and weighty because these are the words of the living God given by God himself, the God-man Jesus Christ. And therefore, as a result of this, over the course of history, this sermon has affected and influenced more lives than any other message that has ever been given. The principles and the ethical statements that come from this sermon have actually impacted people from all walks of life, not, not simply believers, but all walks of life. In fact, uh, many have been impacted by this life, uh, by the sermon, or have no relationship with Jesus Christ, even those who refuse to worship Jesus Christ. For example, the Sermon on the Mount profoundly influenced the Hindu Gandhi as he established India's freedom through a non-violent revolution. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the Protestant civil rights leader, Martin Luther King, who looked upon the teachings found in the Sermon on the Mount as the basis, the foundation of his approach to non-violence and civil disobedience. But the Sermon on the Mount has not only impacted well-known people who've had a hand in changing the course of history, this sermon has influenced millions of unknown people. Unknown people, it has changed their lives for the better. You see, the brilliance of the Sermon on the Mount is that this sermon touches essentially every significant area of our lives. Every significant area of our lives. For example, in this sermon, Jesus addresses such relevant issues as anger. You ever struggle with anger? All of us do. Jesus spoke about it, chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. He said, you, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, Jesus was saying, this is what you've been told by the rabbis is the standard uh, interpretation of that commandment. If you don't murder, you're okay. But remember, Jesus is God. He's the one who gave the Ten Commandments. He's the author of the Ten Commandments. So he said in verse 22, but I say to you, meaning in contrast to the rabbi's interpretation, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Our Lord is dealing with the with the very relevant practical subject of, of anger, seething inside. Yes, maybe you didn't take a knife and plunge it into someone's heart, but you have... Uh, done character assassination. You've had anger. Jesus also deals with the subject of sexual lust and and what to do with that if we want to honor God. He speaks about that in verses 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So the rabbi said, look, if you just don't commit the physical act of adultery, you're okay. You've been obedient. Jesus said, no, that's wrong. Don't commit the physical act, but don't Commit it in your heart either, because he said, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He goes on to address this very practical subject for men, especially dealing with, with how, to, how to control that. 
He also goes on in verses 31 and 32 of chapter 5 to deal with the important subject of marriage and remarriage. Verse 31, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, which is fornication, sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then he speaks about a most uh, important issue, and that is the issue of revenge, the desire to strike back at people who have hurt us. Ever, Ever have that? All of us have. And Jesus speaks about that. Verse 38. For you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And then he speaks about, in connection with all of this, in chapter 6, the important subject of forgiveness. Something that many of us really, really struggle with. And in verses 14 and 15, he says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others then your father will not forgive your transgression. So you can see just by a sampling that that this is a sermon that touches us uh, where we really are. This is a a sermon that touches us with life and where we live in our daily existence. But unlike many sermons, this one does not address just outward performance. Many sermons in many churches over the years are, are those teachings that just are concerned with how you behave on the outside. Now, outside behavior is very important, but the Lord is concerned with how we behave on the inside as well. And so the Sermon on the Mount deals, and this is why it's so convicting and so relevant, it deals not just with outward performance, but with inner motives of the heart. Why we do what we do. And so in light of that, we see, for example, in chapter 6, Jesus speaks about the the spiritual disciplines, the, the things that we do towards God. The things that we say we do to please God, and yet Jesus puts his finger on something very significant when he says in chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Now, folks, that's that's a real issue in our lives. We all struggle, if we're honest, with that. Don't we want to look spiritual to other people? Don't we want other people to come away thinking, my, how that person is godly? And so Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. He speaks about our relationship with God. and, And he goes on to address the spiritual disciplines of fasting, of giving. He speaks about the spiritual disciplines of praying. Now, these are very practical issues. And in addition to that, he speaks about something we are all concerned about, and that's money matters. Money matters. And Jesus related money to something we are all familiar with, or most of us are, worrying about it. Do we have enough? Chapter 6, verses 24 and 25, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the, the other, or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God, Jesus said, and wealth. You must make a choice. And then he says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you'll put on. Is not life more than food in the body, more than clothing. Now, we would translate that in today today's language saying, do not worry about your mortgage payments and do not worry about how you're going to pay for your child's education. And, and so that's, that's where this sermon connects. 
That's very, very important. Now, in addition to all of this, it's practical value. Society, though they may not, they certainly don't love our Lord. Society has actually uh, embraced some of the sayings found in the Sermon on the Mount. It, it has enduring value. And we see this because there are a number of phrases and statements that have come into our language that really uh, come out of this sermon. Many people are not aware of that, but, but that's the way it is. For example, the phrase, you are the salt of the earth is a statement found in Matthew chapter 5. The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you, comes out of the sermon. And then that oft misinterpreted and misused and misapplied uh, words of Christ about judging, judge not lest you be judged. Many people say that because they don't like anybody dealing, confronting them about their sin, but they don't even realize that it came out of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7. Now, though this sermon is well-known, and it really is, this is the most well-known popular sermon ever given, and as I said, it's greatest, the greatest. Bible teacher John Stott says something that I thought was very insightful, and I agree with him. He said, it is probably the least understood and certainly the least obeyed of Christ's teaching. So just because it's well-known doesn't mean it's well-received by people, doesn't mean it's, it's obeyed by people, doesn't even mean it's understood, and that's where we have to begin our understanding. In fact, there are more opinions as to how to interpret this uh, passage of Scripture than any than almost any other passage of Scripture. There is a statement I'm reminded by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 where he speaks about baptism for the dead. Uh, I think there's over 200 interpretations of that one. But this one has, in a recent survey, it was discovered that, that there are at least 36 different interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. So the question is, how, how do we understand then what this means? Well, first of all, understand this, that God, this is God's revelation. He doesn't want us in the dark about it. If, he, if it's in his word, he wants us to understand it, and we can understand it. How do we do that? When there are 36 interpretations out there, uh, are we arrogant to say we can understand this? No, we're not arrogant on that. This is what scripture uh, has revealed, and God's revelation is to be understood. So how do we make sure that our approach is Correct. Well, like any other passage of Scripture, the first thing we need to do is to make sure that we don't separate this sermon from its context. From its context. Context is critical. 95% of our understanding of Scripture comes from its context. The same way that you understand people talking to you. If you, if you divorce what they say from context, nothing makes any sense. So we can't divorce this sermon from its context. And what is the context here? Well, the Sermon on the Mount has to be understood in, in relation to the overall message of the Gospel of Matthew. What is the overall message of Matthew? Remember, Matthew's primary purpose in penning his Gospel account is to present Jesus Christ as Israel's true Messiah and King. That's the message of the Gospel of Matthew. And that is precisely what he has done in the first four chapters of this book. He has emphasized a number of specific truths designed to convince his readers that Jesus Christ is the King, the Messiah of Israel. That's why in chapter one, he opened up by, by telling us about the genealogy and the birth of Messiah. What was he doing? He was saying that Jesus alone has the royal credentials to be King. Check out his birth. Check out his genealogy. He's in the right line. In chapter two, he mentions how Christ fulfills certain Old Testament prophecies specifically dealing with locations in his uh, infancy and childhood. In chapter 3, Matthew introduces us to an amazing man 
John the Baptist or the baptizer, who was really the forerunner of the king. And he came announcing to Israel that Christ was coming in his kingdom. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven, he really said, is at hand. And he called for Israel to repent in light of the, of the kingdom and the king coming. In chapter 4, which we studied recently, Matthew demonstrates Christ's moral worthiness as king as he faced the, the king of this world, the prince of this world, the god of this world, Satan, and all the temptations Satan threw at him, and Jesus Christ was victorious. The purpose of the temptation is to tell us that this king of ours, Jesus Christ, is morally worthy to be king because he, he took Satan on head on and he beat him. So now that we've come to Matthew 5, we know that whatever this sermon is about, even if, even if you don't know this, even if this is the first time you're ever hearing about the Sermon on the Mount, you, you have to know that just like the rest of this gospel, it has to be related in some way to Christ's kingship, right? Otherwise, we would impose on the text what is not there. Matthew has a, a theological bent. He has a point. He has a message. He has a purpose. And so we know that he's going to be consistent with what he has said before. It's going to have to, in one way or another, relate to the kingship of Christ. Now, to begin to discover the focus, the specific focus of the sermon, it's important to realize that just as its name indicates, it is a sermon. It is a sermon. I think that's very important. It is not an accumulation of various disconnected theological statements from the ministry of Jesus. Why is this important? Though Jesus never specifically said it was a, it's a sermon, nor did Matthew ever identify it in those words as a sermon. The first one who identified it, called it a sermon, was uh, the North African theologian Augustine, who called it a sermon in the 5th century, but rightly so, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. Why is that important? Because every sermon, unlike random spiritual thoughts thrown together or running commentary, has structure and form. Now, after listening to me each week, you might question that, but, but in my mind, at least I know the structure and form of the sermon. So it may not be obvious to you, but, but by definition, a sermon has to have structure. It has to have form. It has to have some orderly arrangement of material. Otherwise, I don't know what you call it, but it's not a sermon. Therefore, every sermon has a central theme. There's a central theme, and then several points that develop that theme. A sermon also has instruction, it has application, and it has exhortation to obey its instruction. Other, It's not a lecture. It's not just dumping information on people. A sermon has form and structure. It takes on a shape of its own. And I don't know why, but most sermons have three points. And interestingly enough, the Sermon on the Mount has three points. So this morning, in order to help us get a handle on the greatest sermon that's ever been given, I want by way of introduction to give you an overview of this magnificent Sermon on the Mount. And the way I want to do this is by asking one key question that I believe its answer opens the door, unlocks the door to understand uh, how to correctly interpret this sermon. Now, once you know the meaning of the sermon, then you can see how Jesus developed this sermon with his three essential point. So the key question, if you're taking notes, and I would encourage you to write this down, the key question that unlocks the meaning of the Sermon on the Mount is what is the main theme 
of this sermon? What is the central thought around which everything else is built? That's, that's how a sermon operates. So to begin with, to answer that question, we first need to discover to whom did Jesus uh, give this sermon? In other words, what, what's the audience? Who is the audience? To whom was the sermon preached? The answer is found in Matthew 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the first thing that Matthew tells us is that Jesus went up to a mountain when he saw a large crowd of people. So a reasonable question to ask is, who were these people? And why did Jesus go up on a mountain when he saw them? Well, I want to take you back to chapter 4, beginning at verse 23, to answer who these people were, who the crowd was. Matthew 4, beginning at verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And news about him spread throughout all Syria, that would be to the north of Israel, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering from various diseases and pains and demoniacs and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And notice this, large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, the ten cities near Galilee, and Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So we're told that at this point in our Lord's Galilean ministry, the beginning of his Galilean ministry, large crowds of people followed him. Now, something I probably haven't emphasized enough, but I want to I want to say it today as clearly as I can, is that Matthew does not always present his material in chronological order. Some some material is, but not all of it. Much of it is is topical, and, and we can fit it all together when we look at a harmony of the gospel. And, and when you can harmonize the gospel accounts, we, we realize that Matthew is not always chronological. And that helps us to know this at this point, because by the time Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, we know that he had healed many people. This was not just the beginning of his ministry. He had healed many people, and as a result, he was immensely popular immensely popular. So when people learned that this amazing teacher with healing power was in their area, they, they just naturally sought him out and they naturally followed him. Those are the people who were there. That's the crowd. They're curiosity seekers. They're people who perhaps have been healed by him who or who wanted healing or who wanted a miracle. And we're told that seeing this large crowd of people, Jesus now walks up a mountain. I don't want you to, when, when you hear of a mountain, I don't want you to get the impression that he's climbing the Rockies or anything like that. There's nothing like that in, in Israel. Uh, there's one major tall mountain that's nowhere near this area of Galilee, and that's Mount Hermon. But this is really a sloping hill. If you've ever been to Israel, you can picture it in your mind, the place that uh, most would say, and probably right, is the, uh, the Mount of Beatitudes, it's called. It was a sloping hill, and it's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. There are many hills there. We're not exactly sure the the precise spot, but it was in that general area. And you could really rightfully call this the Sermon on the Hill. That that would be a more accurate uh, statement. It is not a a mountain in which Jesus is, you know, climbing up this this enormous uh, mountain range. So he does this in order to address the people, the sloping hills with, with grass. They're a very pretty spot. And I remember Jesus did not have access to a public address system. He didn't have access to an acoustical amphitheater. So he, what he's doing is he's using the natural setting 
of a mountainside with a sloping area to teach the people who would be below him. And there were levels. It, would, it just gradually sloped down. But I want you to notice something that's very important, very important. The large crowds of people were not the only ones present that day to hear this sermon. We're told this, Matthew tells us that after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, this is the first time that we have seen this word disciple used by Matthew. It's certainly not the last time. In fact, he'll close his gospel account by telling us that our commission is to go and make what? Disciples. This is the first time he mentions it. What is a disciple? Well, he's using it here essentially to mean a follower of Jesus. The word literally means a learner, a pupil, a, a student. So not only do we have a large crowd of people in general, curious people, people interested in hearing more about what he had to say, but you have his own disciples there, uh, those who would be believers, those who had made a commitment to learn from him and to follow him. We're glad you could join us for Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff will continue this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount when we meet again. These daily radio Bible classes are an extension of his teaching ministry, and they are produced by Verse by Verse Ministries. You can learn how to help keep us on the air at our website, versebyverseradio.org. If you would like to listen to the entire sermon, you will want to order an audio CD or a cassette. You can do so by calling us at 727-23... Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.